Hello, everyone, and welcome to Opposing the Matrix. Boy, oh boy, let me tell you, it's been an interesting couple of weeks uh, with Ralph Epperson. Uh, the content that he's been sharing with us is amazing. <clears throat> uh, we've run into a couple of problems, as you probably heard if you listened to last week's show. I did a little header before the show. And um, last week, we uh, had a lot of garbled uh, noise coming over. Ralph's voice was cutting out and things like that, which is something that's indicative of Skype. Uh, however, I don't think it was Skype. I think it was Ralph's computer. Anyway, um, so uh, what I did this week is uh, we were going to attempt to do it because we found out that after last week's show that if he turned his speakers on, uh, we could hear his speakers. And it was doing a narration of the slideshow for the second part, uh, parts three and four, actually, of the uh, of the presentation. Uh, we did parts one and two the week before. Anyway, uh, what happened was the speakers weren't work tonight, and we tried for a good 45 minutes to get, minutes to get the speakers to work, and it didn't work. So uh, what Ralph and I both agreed to do was to take his presentation that was on YouTube, um, which is the same presentation he was going to give us tonight, and... Um, and to put it on uh, on Spreaker and also to put the uh, video on um, on YouTube and also on the archive site for Delusion Resistance. Well, that, that ran into its own little problems because uh, I had to find a program to download the uh, file from uh, from YouTube. And I ended up using, a, <laughs> of all things, uh, an online um, downloading service, uh, which worked really well and really fast. So I was really happy about that. Well, anyway, but that gave me a uh, uh, three-hour video. And I only have three hours uh, a night or at a time allotment on uh, on uh, Spreaker. So I couldn't put a three-hour and 11-minute uh, uh, soundtrack on there. So uh, what I'm planning on doing here is uh, finding where we left off last week and adding it on to here. So um, we can have two shows on Spreaker. Uh, then we will have two shows, uh, audio shows, that is, on um, YouTube's. And, but a one uh, three-hour uh, video of the uh, the talk. So it's a lot of work. Yes, it is, but it's worth it, well worth it, um, for your sake, because it's something you need to know, and for Ralph's sake, because it's something he needs to share, and for my sake, because it's... It's the Opposed in a Matrix show, and we have things like this on there all the time. So anyway, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and uh, shut up and uh, let the uh, the audio play. So um, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get a lot out of it. You may not just, you may not agree with everything that's been uh, aired last week and this week, but uh, listen to it and give it a chance and see what happens, okay? 
we will talk uh, another time. Uh, next week, hopefully, we'll have things worked out so that we can uh, play things <clears throat> with Ralph on the other end. So, again, without further ado, uh, here we go. On with the show. Only the U.S. has nukes, part three of four. Those who do not agree with my position that Russia has only a few real missiles are generally quick to point out that Russia does have rockets capable of launching heavy loads into space. I am the first to admit that the Soviets do have such a space capability. But using their space program as evidence that Russia as a missile force has some real problems. Because much of their space program is also built on fraud and deception, as I am now going to prove. Another one of Russia's space successes that must be questioned is their claim to have launched the first man into space. They claimed that they had sent Yuri Gagarin, a Russian cosmonaut, into space on May the 5th, 1961. Before I discuss Mr. Gagarin's space flight, I would like to discuss the years before he made his trips. This is a copy of an article in the December 8th, 1962, December, uh, Dallas Morning News. It reports that the Russians had some real problems before Mr. Gagarin's trip. In February of 1959, about two years before Mr. Gagarin's flight, the Russians reported a cosmonaut was launched into space for 28 minutes. His signals were recorded, and then nothing was heard from him again. On October the 11th, 1960, another Russian was placed into orbit. His signals were monitored for 30 minutes, and then contact was broken. Nothing was ever heard from him again. On November 28, 1960, another Russian cosmonaut sent a frantic message to Earth. These signals were monitored briefly, and then there was silence. On February 2, 1961, another cosmonaut was sent into orbit. His signal was monitored for half an hour, and then there was silence. On April 7, 1961, another spaceman was launched, but contact with his ship was lost seconds after a blast-off. So just before the Russians claimed they launched Mr. Gargarin, they experienced real problems in their space effort. Now let me return to a discussion of Yuri Gagarin's spaceflight, because there are some real problems with that alleged spaceflight as well. Russian news sources carried Gagarin's communications from space in which he described the Earth's blue haze around the Earth, low at the horizon. This is a picture of the blue haze taken as another cosmonaut walks in space. At the same time Gagarin was saying this, Soviet space scientists were in Italy at a meeting on space exploration. They, was, they were quoted as saying that Yuri's capsule had no portholes, but no one asked how a cosmonaut could see a blue haze without any windows on the spacecraft. But Yuri's story had another interesting contradiction in it that also went unnoticed by the world's press. 
newspaper report said that Yuri rode the spacecraft down to the ground. They said, quote, soon after he stepped from the craft, end quote. However, the space scientist reported that he had parachuted to Earth, landing easily on his feet. Now, which was it? Landing in the craft or parachuting out of the craft to Earth? You certainly can't have it both ways. So maybe Yuri didn't make the flight at all. Maybe he was a loyal communist who did what he was asked to do for the good of the party, and he was told to lie about the entire affair. And the reason he was told to lie is because the Russians discovered that communism was a great economic failure and that they could not successfully launch a man into space in the years prior to 1961. And in their haste to get his story out, they failed to properly brief him and the scientists who were to provide the cover story. And mistakes were made in the details. And American scientists who learned about all of the tragic deaths and the mistaken details were reluctant to let the American people know the truth. Because they needed a successful Russian spacewalk to urge the Congress to fund their space program with additional dollars so that America could catch up with the Russians. And that takes money, lots of money, and it was provided. And all of the time, the Americans knew that Mr. Gargarin was lying and that the Soviets had attempted several space flights, and each had failed. And to make the world believe they were the first in space, the Russians lied. And all of this deception cost the American people billions of dollars. But why should we worry? We Americans are wealthy people, and we have a lots, lots of money to waste on fraudulent programs. Now let's examine the Russian claim to have had the first cosmonaut walk in space. On March the 18th, 1965, they announced that Alexei Leonov, one of their cosmonauts, was the first one to accomplish this. Roy Mallin, a space writer for Science and Mechanics magazine, published a new book, a news book in 1966 called Russia's Space Hoax. Mr. Mallon went to Russia to obtain actual photographs of this historic event. He was able to secure both still photographs taken of the walk and an actual motion picture of the event. He then had these pictures analyzed by American experts in photography, and this is Mr. Mallon's conclusion after four months of research into the spacewalk. The walk in space supposedly made by the Russian cosmonaut was a phony. He based his conclusion on the following facts. Number one, Leonov was suspended from wires or cables. The experts were able to actually see light being reflected from a small portion of the wire attached to a spacesuit. This is that photograph, and you can clearly see the wire holding him in place. But the Russian scientist claimed he had floated free in space. 
Number two, one camera angle was impossible of achievement. This is a still taken from the motion picture and shows Leonov coming out of the space hatch into space. Now, the obvious question is, if Leonov was the first man in space, who was shooting this picture? If it was another cosmonaut and he is taking the picture, he was the first man in space, not Leonov. But don't ask, because American scientists did not ask, so why should we? But there is an even more far interesting question. Leonov reported that he came out of the craft and then set the camera. So if he exited only once, how did he take the pictures of him exiting the spacecraft if he set the camera in place after he exited? Number three, the face plate on Leonov's space helmet was up during a part of a spacewalk, and his face was clearly visible. This picture shows the cosmonaut with the space helmet on. American astronauts wear a filter in their helmet that blocks out 90% of the sun's rays because at that altitude, there's little atmosphere to block them out. They know that if you look into the sun without a visor, you can go blind in seconds because the sun's rays are too intense. But notice in this picture that Leonov is out in space without a protective filter. You could argue that he is in the shade, but if the sun's rays would reflect into his eyes, he would go blind, even though he is somewhat protected by being in the shade. Number four, further evidence that Leonov didn't walk in space, as the Russians claimed, came with this discovery. Mr. Malin writes, the black and white still photographs of Leonov were photographed in a tank of water. Mr. Mallon showed this rather grainy picture in his book taken from a television program. Those blotchy areas to the top back of his helmet are shown inside the rectangle, and they are bubbles. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, there are bubbles in space. The Russians proved it with their pictures of Alexei Leonov walking in space. Mr. Mallon asked photographic experts to analyze the photo, and they concluded that those blotchy areas were bubbles coming from the cosmonaut's helmet. Now, you must be saying that bubbles are formed when air passes through a liquid, and that would be true until the Russians prove that there are bubbles in space formed when, in, when air exits from a space suit. And once again, our space scientists did not read Mr. Mellon's book, so they did not question the evidence. So that was their official position. There are bubbles in space. That is, until National Geographic's magazine did an article on the Soviet space program in 1986. This magazine showed the Russian cosmonauts being trained in water. And keeping with the natural state of things, there are huge columns of bubbles rising from the waters, through the water from the cosmonauts. So the photographs of Leonov walking in space were taken in a tank of water. Number five, the motion picture of the event was double printed which means the foreground, meaning the astronaut, was superimposed on the background, meaning the Earth below. The Russians did not do a very good job of fooling the viewer because Mr. Mallon and his photo experts were able to verify that 
the reflections from the glass plate under which a double print is made were visible in all of the pictures. I would like to show you just how easy it is to make a double print. I cut the picture of Leonoff from what I uh, cut out the picture of Leonoff from one of his pictures allegedly taken in space and made a double print of him orbiting over Disneyland in Southern California. And here Leonoff is shown orbiting over New York on a clear day in that city. And lastly, here Leonoff is orbiting over Phoenix, the state capital of Arizona. By the way, Arizona is the, only, is the only state in the Union that looks exactly like a road map when viewed from space. But it is not polite to find fault with the Russian space effort, and American space experts did not want to embarrass the Russians, so they said nothing. However, Ralph Epperson is not so polite when it comes to the truth. So after, after an examination of all of the evidence, it is fair to say that the Russians tried to fool us into believing that Alexei Leonov walked in space. When all of the evidence shows us that Alexei Leonov never walked in space, it is just another example of Russian fraud passed off as Russian truth. But we must give credit where credit is due. Thank you, American media members, for exposing the enormous fraud of these three Russian space efforts. This is part of an article that appeared in the October 13, 1969, New York Times Magazine. The entire headline reads, U.S. and Soviet see key exploration role for space station. The article featured four drawings of future projections of space stations. This is the drawing I would like to bring to your attention uh, that appeared in the New York Times. According to the caption, it is a drawing of a crewman, or crewman rather, in another mothership transferring to help another ship in orbit. It has been described by the newspaper as, quote, one concept of a future Soviet space station. So the reader of the newspaper was, to, was supposed to believe that the Soviets had drawn this to illustrate one of their plans for a space station. The, worked until the, the trick worked until a 17-year-old identified the drawing as being one that the Sperry Gyroscope Company had used in one of their ads in the Scientific American magazine for February 1962, seven years before the Soviets decided it was, in truth, a concept of a Soviet space station. But the clever New York Times writers must have felt that if they turned the drawing sideways, no one would notice. So that is what they did. Here are the two drawings side by side, properly turned, so that you can see that the concept of a Soviet space station is nothing more than a New York Times trick that failed. Nice try, New York Times, but your deception has been discovered. We have been told that the Russians were developing a space shuttle like the ones already developed by the United States. This is a drawing that appeared in my local newspaper on October the, in October 1988, showing the two space shuttles side by side. 
And the reason they are so much alike is because NASA, America's space program, sold Russia the plans for the space shuttle for $500. That has to rank as the biggest bargain in recorded history. We American taxpayers spend billions of dollars on the development of our space shuttle, and NASA sells the plans to the Russians for $500. But even with our generous gift of the plans for the space shuttle, Russia was unable to make it work. This is an article that appeared in the Arizona Daily Star on October the 27th, 2002, and it explained the Russians developed their space shuttle from the plan sold to them by NASA and launched it for the first and only time on November the 15th, 1988. The Russians abandoned the project in 1993, only five years later, and... They sold the space shuttle to an Australian who took it to Sydney as a tourist attraction. Now, here's another example. Even the standard spacesuit for Soviet cosmonauts was sold to NASA, sold by NASA for $180,000, even though the space agency sent, spent $20, billion, $20 million on it for research and development. Don't ask NASA to sell your used car. You'll never get what it is worth. Our scientists at NASA are really looking out for our interests, aren't they? And there is a reason for that. The American government sold space technology to Russia so that they can convince the American people that the Russian space program was ahead of ours. And the reason for that is so that they can justify the spending of billions of dollars on our space program in an attempt to catch and then pass the Russians in space. And the Russians wouldn't have a space program at all if we didn't send them the technology to have one themselves. They would be flying kites into the air with the cosmonaut hanging on for dear life. Yes, we are being conned. We are being taught that since they have the technology to construct such an advanced space program, they must have a missile force, especially when they say that they have one. Russia uses whatever space successes they have had to convince us that they have a missile force. The skeptic to my position that Russia has deceived the world about their missile force can certainly point to the event that occurred in 1962 called the Cuban Missile Crisis, when it is claimed that Russia put missiles and nuclear weapons on the island. But I want you to know that I've studied this event, and I can unalterably say that Russia placed no missiles nor warheads in Cuba. Let me repeat that. Russia placed no missiles nor warheads in Cuba. One of the reasons I know that is because the president at the time of the crisis, John Kennedy, shown on the left, saw no missiles in Cuba. Bobby Kennedy, the president's brother and his attorney general, shown on the right in that picture, wrote a book about the whole affair entitled 
13 days, meaning the 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis. He wrote that he and the president and 18 others, all members of the president's cabinet or military officers, were invited to a meeting to see the photograph of the evidence that the CIA had provided that the Russians were putting missiles into Cuba. That meeting was held on October the 16th, 1962. Bobby tells us what his response was to those photographs taken from a U-2 high-altitude jet airplane. He wrote, I examined the pictures very carefully. I, for one, had to take their word for it. But this is the key observation. I was relieved to hear later that this was the same reaction of virtually everyone at the meeting, including President Kennedy. Notice that neither Bobby Kennedy nor the president saw any missiles, nor did everyone, nearly everyone else at the meeting. This is one of those photographs shown to these officials as printed in Bobby Kennedy's book. This is the ballistic missile site at San Cristobal, Cuba, and what you see is a bunch of trees and some fields and, a, and various pieces of equipment and buildings. The CIA had put little white labels on certain of the objects in the photograph, like the missile erectors at about 11 o'clock, the tracked prime movers at around 2 o'clock, the oxidizer tank trailers at 4 o'clock, fuel tank trailers at around 7 o'clock, and missile shelter tents at 10 o'clock. Notice that there were no white labels pointing to missiles, and none of the other photographs of the other sites thought to be missile sites showed any missiles either, just the equipment used in missile preparation. But our intelligence experts concluded that no nation would bring all of this equipment intended to provide assistance to the missiles without bringing missiles as well. So they concluded that Russia had brought missiles because they brought all of this equipment only intended to be utilized in launching missiles. And they thought that they had the proof that missiles had been brought to Cuba because when they looked at other pictures of other sites in Russia, they found tent-like structures that they believed the Russians constructed to put their missiles into to protect them from the elements or from sabotage. So our experts naturally concluded that Russia had brought missiles to Cuba because they saw other structures the Russians used to store their missiles in even though they saw no missiles in the pictures. But the questions remain. If they saw no missiles in the photographs, why did they think there were missiles in Cuba? And the answer is that they must have claimed that the cameras in our U-2 airplanes could see inside a tent shelter or other building. And the truth is that they cannot. But even though the president did not see any missiles in Cuba, six days later, on October the 22nd, 1962, he was on national television advising the nation that he saw missiles in Cuba. The question that must be asked is why did the president say there were missiles in Cuba only six days after he said there were no missiles in Cuba? 
And the answer to that question is frightening, and here it is. The reason he said he saw missiles in Cuba is because he was told to say there were missiles in Cuba. And the reason he said that was because he knew he was not in charge of the nation's response to the entire crisis. He was told what to do during the whole affair. I would like to discuss the evidence that this statement is true by first of all mentioning a book written by Ellie Abel, a special correspondent for NBC News during the crisis. As you can see, it is entitled The Missile Crisis, and it was published in 1966. And in it, he wrote, President Kennedy distinctly remembered having given instructions long before the Cuban Missile Crisis that the Jupiter missiles must be removed from Turkey. We, we have been taught that when the president wants something done, it gets done. But notice here that when he ordered the missiles to be removed, no missiles were removed. Then Mr. Abel provided another example to show that the president was not in charge. He told us that after Kennedy was told that a U-2 high-altitude jet airplane had taken the pictures of the alleged missile sites in Cuba, the president, who had issued careful instructions against provocative flights of this sort, was moved to ironic laughter. President Kennedy wanted the U-2 flights to stop. He issued orders that these flights were to stop, and the flights did not stop. Two more articles come from an article from the May 9th, 1988 issue of Newsweek featuring a lengthy article about Bobby Kennedy here shown on the cover of the magazine. These examples come from their discussion of the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba in April of 1961. The article reported that we found out later despite the president's orders that no American forces were to be used, the first two people who landed in the Bay of Pigs were Americans. The CIA sent them in. So it looked like President Kennedy was not in charge of, as president of the United States. If he was not in charge, who was? And I believe the answer to that question is found in Bobby Kennedy's book entitled 13 Days. Bobby named the 18 other people around the president who assisted him during the entire crisis. 14 of the 18 were members of the secret society called the Council on Foreign Relations. I would like to spend just a few minutes on explaining who this organization is and what they stand for. Dan Smoot was an agent for the FBI and worked as an assistant to J. Edgar Hoover, its head. He wrote a book entitled The Invisible Government in 1962 and introduced the American people to this previously unknown secret society founded in around 1920. Mr. Smoot told us what the purpose of the organization was. The Council on Foreign Relations, abbreviated to the initials the CFR, constituted the invisible government, which sets the major policies of the federal government. 
Notice that their name indicates that they are directly concerned with foreign relations. An invasion of Cuba and the placing of missiles into that land would be considered as a foreign relation. If Bobby Kennedy and Dan Smooter write, it was the Council on Foreign Relations that was in charge of the American plans for both of these events. President Kennedy tried to remove missiles from Turkey. Someone else wanted them to stay, and they stayed. President Kennedy ordered the U-2 overflights to stop. Someone else wanted them to continue, and they continued. President Kennedy did not see any missiles in Cuba. Someone else wanted him to see missiles in Cuba, so President Kennedy saw missiles in Cuba. President Kennedy issued orders that no Americans should be involved in the landing at the Bay of Pigs. Someone else wanted Americans involved in the landing of the Bay of Pigs, so Americans landed at the Bay of Pigs. It sounds to me like this is not a government of, by, and for the people. It is a government of, by, and for the Council on Foreign Relations. There is one more example of how the Council ran the Cuban Missile Crisis. The American people were told that the Cuban Missile Crisis ended when Russia withdrew all of their missiles from Cuba. There is not one shred of evidence that the Russians withdrew anything from Cuba. Let me prove that. I have a total of seven photographs, all different, of Russian ships supposedly carrying the missiles out of Cuba. These photographs were taken by various sources, including news magazines. I would like to show you three of these seven to show you that the ships did not contain missiles. This is the first one, and it shows a Russian ship with unknown objects covered by tarpaulins. But it is impossible to know what is underneath the tarp. This photograph appeared in U.S. News World Report for March the 29th, 1982. It shows a, ro a rather long object covered by another tarp, but it is impossible to know what is underneath. The caption says, Soviet ship removes nuclear missiles from Cuba in 1962. Now, how did U.S. News World Report know what was under a tarp? No American boarded a Russian ship to verify if those objects were, in fact, missiles. It is impossible for anyone to know. This picture appeared in the November 14, 1983 edition of the U.S. News and World Report, and it shows three tarp-covered objects on the front deck. Once again, it is impossible to know what is underneath the tarps, but the outline seems to say that they are airplanes with an elevated tail in the rear. Now, here's the clincher. President Kennedy told Nikita Khrushchev, the Russian dictator, that he was going to board all of the Russian ships leaving Cuba with the missiles after the Cuban Missile Crisis was ending. But no one from America boarded any Russian ship. No one from America verified that the missiles were removed by an onboard inspection. 
And the only thing that makes sense is that there were no Russian missiles to remove. And the Council on Foreign Relations and the CIA wanted to make certain that no one in the U.S. Navy or in the Coast Guard looked underneath the tarps to confirm that there was nothing underneath them but some wooden frames to make the shape for the tarps to cover. Now, why did the Russians not put missiles, missiles into Cuba? And the reason is obvious. They didn't have any missiles to put in Cuba. Now, let me bring you one evidence of that fact. This is, once again, Colonel Oleg Penkovsky, the Russian intelligence officer that I quoted before. He told us in 1965, four years later, why Russia did not send missiles into Cuba. As far as launching a planned missile attack to destroy definite targets is concerned, we are not yet capable of doing it. We simply do not have any missiles that are accurate enough. What he was saying was, was we do not have any missiles. But America did not believe Oleg Penkovsky. We believed Nikita Khrushchev, the Russian, Russian communist, instead. But there were others who did not see any missiles in Cuba either. Bobby Kennedy quoted English Prime Minister Harold Macmillan when he examined the photographs of the missile sites in Cuba. He said, I take it for granted that the statements made by your government are unchallengeable. It doesn't sound like he saw any missiles either. He was willing to take our word for it. When Charles de Gaulle, the French premier, was asked to see the pictures, he said, it was not necessary to see the photographs as a great government such as yours does not act without evidence. He didn't even look at the pictures. He took our word for it. In other words, these two foreign leaders did not see any missiles because I believe they, too, were in on the game. But the conclusion is fairly stated when I say that there were no missiles in Cuba. And the reason I know that is because I looked at the pictures. But the final proof that there were no missiles in Cuba came on October the 14th, 2002, when my local newspaper published this article. It shows former CIA analyst Dino Brugioni, Brugioni, I don't know how to pronounce it, Brugioni, in one of the buildings in Cuba in which, quote, Soviet missiles were stockpiled, end quote. The article says that Mr. Brugioni was the CIA analyst who analyzed the pictures taken by the U-2 airplane. And then it went on to explain, one image, meaning one of the photographs, showed large tent-like constructions that CIA analysts said appeared, appeared, appeared to be sheltering sheltering medium-range missiles. Notice that Mr. Brugioni did not see missiles. He saw tent-like objects that appeared, 
appeared appeared to house missiles, and the picture showed him inside a Quonset hut that they claimed housed missiles. Once again, let me ask the question. How can a camera inside a high-altitude airplane take a picture inside a building? The article continued. Other photographs taken by the U-2 plane showed an apparent an apparent missile launch site at this military installation. And now we know why President Kennedy and his brother Bobby saw no missiles in any of the pictures. What this article is saying is that the American government did not, and I repeat, did not have any proof that the Russians had moved missiles into Cuba. And the final piece of the Cuban Missile Crisis is this one. The Soviet ambassador to the United Nations, Anatoly Dobrynin, was quoted as saying that his government certainly did not propose to place in the hands of any third party the power to involve the Soviet Union in a nuclear war. There is the answer. The Soviet Union did not put missiles in Cuba because they did not trust the Cuban people. And this will play an extremely important role in a few minutes. They were afraid that Fidel Castro or some rebel Cubans would launch missiles against the United States, and then the Americans would launch their nuclear missiles on Russia. And Russia would be in a war with America that they did not start. If you want more information about the fraudulent Cuban Missile Crisis, may I suggest that you consider watching my video entitled Russia Has Wooden Missiles. It will be available through my catalog, which is available through a street address at the end of this speech. Part four. Now, if there were no missiles in Cuba and our government knew that, why did the entire thing happen? And I would like to personalize it because it happened to me. In 1962, I was working in Los Angeles, California. I remember listening to a radio broadcast about John Kennedy's orders that Russian ships coming to Cuba were to be boarded to determine if they contained nuclear missiles and weapons. I became so frightened, I was actually shaking. I was listening to a scenario unfold that could have caused World War III because if the Russian ships were boarded in the open sea, that would be an act of war. And I feared that the Russians would start World War III by launching nuclear missiles against the United States. And that was the reason that the Council on Foreign Relations planned the entire event. The lessons we were Americans were to believe was clear. John Kennedy had brought us to the brink of a nuclear war that could have killed millions. That was the official media slant on the story. But that doesn't answer the question as to why the Council on Foreign Relations planned it. And here is the reason. 
The conspiracy running the United States wanted to remove President Kennedy from office. So they created the Cuban Missile Crisis to convince certain individuals inside the Dallas Department, Police Department, Dallas Police Department, the CIA, the FBI, and the Secret Service to assist them in their assassination plot. How else would you be able to get Americans to assist in the assassination of their own president without some sort of crisis that demanded the removal of the president? What else makes sense? Because members of all of these groups, including the other two, the Mafia and the Masons, were directly involved in the assassination of our president. Now, I'm aware that this conclusion is controversial, but if you do not agree with me, you are still stuck with this question. How do you get members of these six organizations to assist in an assassination of a president without the Cuban Missile Crisis? I think my explanation is the only one that makes sense. Now, if you want to see how the president was murdered by a conspiracy and how the Warren Commission that investigated the assassination framed an innocent man, you might want to watch my two-hour video entitled The Kennedy Assassination. And if you want to see why the conspiracy murdered President Kennedy, this three-hour video entitled Vietnam, America's Betrayal and Treason would be of interest. President Kennedy was murdered because he didn't want to go to war in Vietnam. This video also discusses how the conspiracy planned the Vietnamese War in at least 1943, 21 years before it started in 1964. And it proves that the reason the war was, in fought, was fought was over drugs and not to keep South Vietnam out of the hands of the communists. And to my knowledge, no one else in this nation is telling you this was the real purpose of the war. Now, let me return to the Cuban Missile Crisis. There is an interesting story that I would like to tell you now because it is extremely pertinent to the whole Cuban Missile Crisis. As I said, I produced a video in 1987 that I called Russia Has Wooden Missiles. And it was about an hour and 45 minutes long, and it showed much of the evidence I had found up to that time. I showed it on the local access television station for several years, trying to let the people in Tucson know about the myth of Russian military superiority. During that taping, I discussed the facts that the Cuban Missile Crisis was an enormous hoax, that there were no missiles in Cuba. I asked my personal medical doctor to watch it because he was, as I remember, the head of the Arizona chapter of a national organization called Physicians for Social Responsibility. This was a nationwide group of doctors who were concerned that America should prepare itself for a nuclear war with Russia. My doctor watched the tape and sent a copy of it to their national headquarters in Washington, D.C., with a stick'em note attached which read, Have we been fooled? Apparently, my doctor believed me. This was in November of 1988. Just about two months later, 
On January the 29th, 1989, this article appeared in my local newspaper. It reported that a two-day conference was called in Moscow, Russia, to affirm the official establishment story that Soviet warheads were in Cuba in 1962. It said that many of the principal players in the drama met to declare that the Soviets had indeed put missiles and warheads in Cuba. I was stunned because I did not understand. Why would these people gather together to proclaim that an event, a lie, was true 27 years after the crisis? And the only reason I could think of was that I was in America loudly proclaiming that there were no missiles and no warheads in Cuba. I was being interviewed on talk programs all over America and selling copies of my video. All I know is that my video made it to Washington, D.C. and into the hands of a national organization that believed that the Russians had thousands of nuclear-tipped missiles. Let's just theorize that the man in charge in Washington, D.C. had some connections to the Council on Foreign Relations, and he sensed that I was having some effect on the thinking of the American people. He would have wanted to counter my arguments so that I would lose my effectiveness. And I believe the establishment had to stop me, and the only way they thought they could do that short of murdering me was to discredit my research. So they convened this meeting in Moscow with some of the principals to issue this joint statement that, in essence, I was wrong to proclaim that there were no missiles and warheads in Cuba. If I am right, it is comforting to me to know that little Ralphie Ralphie Epperson got these American participants a free trip to Russia in January of 1989 when it's very cold in that nation. But But my research has paid off in another way as well. In 1989, a movie was made called Russia House starring Sean Connery and Michelle Pfeiffer. The premise of the movie was that a Russian scientist was trying to defect and bring out the evidence that Russia had no nuclear weapons, just exactly as I had been saying for at least six years. The only unfortunate circumstance is that I got no credit for the idea, and I didn't get get to meet Michelle Pfeiffer either. But it was comforting to know that someone else saw the enormous potential for this story and that they made a movie out of it the year after my video was delivered to a national organization in Washington, D.C. Perhaps the most successful use of deception occurred in 1944 during World War II when British and American intelligence developed a deception they called Operation Fortitude. That operation fooled Adolf Hitler's entire staff when they constructed an entire fake army to make the Germans believe they were planning an invasion into the French town of Calais. The real invasion was being planned through Normandy further north. They built an entire oil refinery, ammunition dumps, thousands of tanks and planes, several army bases, all made of rubber. This plan was discussed in a book published in 1974 entitled The Ultra Secret by F. 
W. Winterbottom. The deception worked, and Hitler kept many more of his divisions in the south, and this made the invasion through Normandy successful. Parade Magazine of June the 6th, 1982, showed a photograph of one of the fake rubber tanks alongside a real tank. Omar Bradley, an American general during World War II, said, Operation Fortitude was the biggest hoax of the war. But the most intriguing thought of all came in this article, published on December the 27th, 1987, in the Arizona Daily Star. It revealed that the Soviets were the most adept, having everything from pseudo-ballistic missiles to entire fake armies. Notice that this article was saying that the Russians have pseudo-ballistic missiles, just as I am proving here today and that they have entire fake armies. Just what was real and what was fake in the Soviet Union? Just how many divisions of soldiers did they have? Just how many missiles did they have? The article continued, under a branch of the military called the Principal Directorate of Strategic Deception. The Russians have a branch of the army completely dedicated to fooling the United States. They call it the Principal Directorate of Strategic Deception. The general in charge of this department reports directly to the Russian premier. The article quoted a major in the United States Army named Andrew Fallon as saying, quote, We know they make decoys of the highest order of equipment. End quote. Now, there are two very important things to discuss in that article. The Army Major just said that the Russians make decoys of the highest order of equipment. I would presume that that means that they make decoys of missiles, which would seem to be the highest order of equipment. That means our government knew that the Russian government made fake missiles. And the second thing that is important about this article is the timing. Notice that this article was written on December the 27th, 1987, shortly after Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev signed the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty on December the 8th, 1987. That date is extremely significant because on January the 25th, 1988, just about a month later, the president submitted the INF Treaty to the Senate for ratification. This means that shortly after the treaty was signed, but not ratified by the U.S. Senate, which is required by the Constitution, the Senate knew that the Russian government made fake missiles to deceive the U.S. government. This is extremely important. The U.S. Senate knew that Russia had phony missiles, and yet they approved the treaty that was intended to destroy missiles that some knew were not real. We will examine that treaty in just a few minutes to show you that it should have never been signed and ratified. 
that means that there was still a chance that the treaty did not have to be approved. It could have been stopped shortly after our government admitted that there are at least some of the Russian missiles being fake. Now, let me return to the discussion of the Russian government. Even James, the world's leading expert on missiles and military armaments, is having trouble certifying the existence of one of Russia's missile systems. These are books written by them to document the existence of the Russian military. This is a poor quality copy of an article taken from inside the October 5, 1985 edition of their magazine entitled Jane's Defense Weekly, and the article discusses Russia's submarine equipped with surface-to-air missiles. The headline reads, Tango. That's the name of this class of submarines with the SAM, meaning a surface-to-air missile, dummy or real. And the article was accompanied by these three pictures of a Russian Tango-class submarine. The third picture showed some surface-to-air missiles on the deck of the submarine. But the writer of the article questioned Russia's claim that these missiles were real. Quote, as the SAM installation has not been seen in any other angle than that shown, it is possible it is fixed because it is a dummy installation. Jane's, the world's leading expert on armaments, could not determine whether Russia's surface-to-air missiles were real or fake, and they concluded that it was a probably, probably a fake series of missiles. Then the article ended with this confirming revelation. The Soviets are known to have a penchant for dummy installations, including land-based SAMs, and this may well be disinformation on the high seas. Nations look to Jane's for information on Soviet armaments, and here the experts admit that Russia builds some dummy missiles. The world's authority says that at least some of Russia's missiles are phony. But the most important thing to notice here is that this article was written in 1985, about two years before the INF Treaty was signed by President Ronald Reagan. So if President Reagan had read the article in Jane's Magazine, he would have known the Soviets have a penchant for dummy installations. But the Senate could have known specifically that the Russian government actually had a department to deceive the American government by the use of these dummy installations. If only they read that article that appeared before the treaty. That department, once again, is called the Principal Directorate of Strategic Deception. And it is headed by a Russian general named Nikolai Ogorkov. This is a picture of the general that appeared in the March 1984 edition of Air Force magazine that I mentioned before. It is his job to conceal the truth about their missiles and nuclear weapons, exactly as he was taught by Sun Tzu in his book entitled The Art of War. Let me remind you that Sun Tzu wrote... Practice 
deceit. So President Reagan could have known that whatever the Russian government said about their missile force, you could at the very least have suspected that it was all a lie. The next bit of evidence to examine is the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty itself. This is the cover of that treaty. I'm going to quote the paragraph underlined in yellow at the top of the page for a very important reason. Now, this is that paragraph, and I want you to notice that it says that this is a treaty between the United States of America and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics on the elimination of their intermediate-range and shorter-range missiles. I want to draw your attention to the key word in that paragraph, and that word is elimination. That means both nations are obligated to destroy, eliminate, get rid of certain missiles. I'm going to repeat this thought because it is a vital understanding of the terms of the treaty. That means both nations are obligated to destroy, eliminate, or get rid of missiles. The procedures governing the elimination of these missiles are detailed in page 172 of the booklet, and this is that paragraph. I'm going to type the words so that we can carefully analyze what they say. Here is how both nations are going to eliminate missiles. Here's what it says. Paragraph 8. A missile subject to the treaty shall be subject to inspection only by external visual observation. So the subject, missile subject to the treaty, shall be subject to inspection only by external visual observation. That means our verifiers cannot touch it, tap on it, cut it, look inside, hit it with a hammer, attach a magnet to see if the missile is even metal. Nothing to verify that the missile is real. Boy, that's the way to eliminate the nuclear threat. The United States knows for certain that the Russians have admitted that at least 20% of their missiles are phony, and President Reagan signs a treaty that permits them to destroy phony missiles as real. Boy, we can all sleep better at night knowing that the Russians have destroyed their phony missiles. But there is even more assurance that the Russians are eliminating their warheads. Listen to this provision of the treaty. It is contained on page 36 of the treaty, and this is that paragraph. Once again, I'm going to type the words so that we can make certain we will know how this provision eliminates the warheads. This is what it said. Paragraph 3 of the Section 2 states that before a missile arrives at the elimination facility, elimination facility, its nuclear warhead device may be removed. Since warheads are small, verifying compliance with such a prohibition would be extremely difficult. 
Now, let's just presume that the Russians had nuclear warheads and that the United States and the Soviet government wanted to eliminate them. Why would both nations want to sign a treaty that gives both nations permission to remove the warhead without any verifiers being present? How do we know that both nations will not remove the warhead from Missile A and put it on top of Missile B? Neither nation would have a way to verify that the warhead was eliminated. So I guess this is the way you eliminate nuclear warheads and missiles. We can all relax now. The nuclear threat is certainly less than before the treaty was signed. But that begs the question, why didn't both nations want to eliminate the warheads and the real missiles? And I believe there is a reason. I believe that the reason both governments did not eliminate warheads and missiles is because both governments know that Russia has some missiles, but both know there are no Russian warheads to destroy. What other explanation fits the facts? What other explanation makes sense? This treaty is an enormous fraud, and both signers of the treaty knew that. And some in our Senate knew that as well. <coughs> Excuse me. But please allow me to quote one of the signers, Ronald Reagan himself. Perhaps we misinterpreted the two provisions we just read. This is a letter discussing the INF Treaty written and signed by President Reagan on White House stationery dated January the 21st, 1988, just a few months, months after he signed the treaty. Now, we all know that President Reagan was a good conservative, a man of immense principle and intelligence, someone who would never fall for such a trick as contained in the treaty itself. So we're going to read the sentence marked with the pink underliner, and please listen very carefully to what President Reagan wrote. The verification provisions in this treaty are the most stringent ever included in an arms agreement between us. So the most stringent verification provisions are, one, neither nation can verify that the missile to be destroyed is real or fake. And number two, neither nation can verify if the warhead is actually eliminated. If these are the most stringent provisions of any arms limitation treaty, I would hate to see the others. I believe I've given you some reason to believe that there is no nuclear threat in the world and that both Russia and America have been lying to us. But what is the purpose of this enormous scam? I found the answer in a motion picture called Midsummer Night's Dream. The author has one of his characters say, or in the night, imagining some fear, how easy is a bush supposed to be a bear? And there's the answer. 
We have been imagining a bear, meaning the nuclear threat from the Russian and other Russians and other nations can cause us harm. And that has us living in fear of it, meaning a nuclear war. And we have been conditioned that the only way to protect us from the bear is to give government billions of our dollars in hopes of keeping the bear out of our living room. And that's why this conspiracy has been creating the enemy and the resulting fear and why we keep paying the enormous taxes to protect us from a non-existing enemy. Now let me discuss the final evidence that this is an attempt to frighten us into doing what the fear mongers want. I want to go back to... 1989, when I was an instructor of about 125 high school students at a week-long summer camp, I was given about six classes to teach, and one was entitled Americanism versus Communism. The 125 students were divided into two classes, the regular first-time students and those who had completed a test about their knowledge from previous camps, and they were called the seniors. I started by saying, I want to show you an interesting thing about this threat of a nuclear war. So I'm going to commission all of you as Russian military officers, and I want you to plan a nuclear attack on the United States. Let's make a list of all of the targets you would want to destroy with our nuclear warheads. And they listed many. But in view of the restricted time I have to cover this, I will only discuss seven of those targets they listed. This is a part of the list they gave me. Number one, we would certainly want to destroy America's nuclear weapons and their Air Force bases and, of course, their naval bases and their Army bases and their government in Washington, D.C. and their population centers and certainly their industrial might. And after we had prepared the list, I explained that not one of those targets was a suitable target of our nuclear warheads. Not one was a suitable target for our nuclear warheads. And then I discussed each of those targets one at a time. Now, this is a map prepared by the U.S. News and World Report on April the 12th, 1982, from data supplied by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, abbreviated FEMA. It shows the high-risk areas in a heavy nuclear attack, presumably because they were our nuclear sites or military bases. You will notice that Tucson, Arizona, appears to be in that larger red area near the bottom middle of the state of Arizona. And it can only be presumed that the reason the magazine showed my city in the red area was because of the 18 Titan II missile silos ringing the city back in 1982. This is a picture that appeared in my local newspaper in August of 1982, and it showed one of these Titan II rockets being removed from its silo so that it could be dismantled later. Apparently, this was in accordance with some arms limitation treaty signed with Russia. So U.S. News was saying that Tucson would be a prime target of the Russians who would need to destroy our nuclear forces in an all-out nuclear attack. So the question becomes... Why would the Russians want to destroy an empty silo? 
I'll ask again, why would the Russians want to destroy an empty silo? President Reagan defined our nuclear deterrent as MAD, M-A-D, standing for Mutual Assured Destruction, which means if you launch your missiles against us, we will launch our missiles against you. So what would be gained by a nuclear war where both sides would be destroyed? It was believed that this threat would act as a deterrent. It was hoped that Russia would not want to launch an attack against us to destroy our nation because they would suffer an attack that would destroy their nation. So Tucson was not a target because the Titan missiles would be gone in an all-out nuclear attack. They would have been launched already by the time the Russian missiles got there. That means our nuclear missiles would have been launched by the time the Russian missiles got there to destroy them. And it would seem to be a foolish waste of a nuclear missile on destroying an empty missile silo. Now, maybe Tucson was a target because of the large Air Force base located there. The Russians would certainly want to destroy America's Air Force. But why would you launch, launch a missile to destroy an empty Air Force base? If there were any planes that could still fly on the ground when the Russian missile got there, there was an American commanding officer guilty of negligence. In other words, the command would be to get everything that can fly into the air. They must have emergency plans on getting as many airplanes off of the ground in an all-out nuclear attack. Surely the Russians would not waste a nuclear warhead on an empty Air Force base. So Tucson was not a military target at all. So U.S. News and World Report and FEMA were wrong. Tucson was not a suitable military target in an all-out nuclear war. The Russians would certainly want to destroy America's naval power, meaning the Russians would want to nuke all naval bases. And I say this, the American command would be to get everything that will float out to sea just as soon as possible. And secondly, most of the fleet is already out to sea anyway. So naval bases are not a target for a nuclear attack either. Oh, surely the Russians would want to destroy America's armed forces, the Army. Now, this might be the only suitable target. I do, do not know how long it would take to evacuate an entire Army base with thousands of soldiers on it. But remember this. Probably the majority, the overwhelming majority of America's Army is not in America. It's scattered all over the world. So if you want to destroy America's armed forces, you would have to nuke all sorts of nations all over the world. So it would be difficult, but not impossible, to destroy America's armed forces. Oh, surely the government, the Russian government, would want to attack the American government in Washington, D.C. Now, if the Russians attack while Congress and the President are there, all of our Congress would go underground into a four- or five-story underground bunker underneath the Capitol building. 
I believe that this bunker was utilized during the 9-11 attack, and many of the cabinet members were down there planning our response or lack of a response to the hijacker's attack. The president would be in a helicopter and into Air Force One within minutes, which means he would not be harmed either. Now, if Congress was not in session when the Russians attacked, most of them live in the suburbs or they are in their home districts all over the United States. So they would not be harmed by a nuclear attack. So Washington, D.C. is not a legitimate target either. The Russians would want to attack the population centers or the industrial capability of America. Now, this poses the all-important question. What is the purpose of an all-out nuclear attack on a nation? What is the goal? If you want to destroy America's population, those capable of running America's industrial machinery, who's going to run the factories? And if you want to have your invading army live like the Americans, why would you want to destroy our industries? And how could the invading Russian population know how to run the factories if they survived and all of the American people were dead? And if you destroy our population, what effect would the irradiated bodies of humans, animals, and growing things have on your invading population? How long would it be before you could occupy America? Now, maybe you just want to destroy all of the Americans. How many nuclear weapons would you have to have to actually kill all of the Americans? If you just hit the population centers, you have not killed all of the Americans. Many people live in small cities scattered all over the United States. And secondly, what effect would the radiation given off by all of these nuclear bombs have on the weather? There are no suitable targets in a nuclear war, but that is not true either. There is only one target, one target of an all-out nuclear war, and that is the threat of the nuclear war. The threat of a nuclear war can be used to expand the size of government on the premise that the American government would beg government Please do anything but keep us out of a nuclear war. So the truth is that the only target for a nuclear war is the minds of the people of the world. And this threat has been used against us for over 60 years. And we continue to pay and pay and pay the enormous cost for a threat that doesn't exist. I would now like to bring together much of what I've already discussed and show you how it all fits together. And secondly, how America and Russia work together because they are both controlled by the same massive conspiracy that I've been researching for over 40 years. I have mentioned the shooting down of the Korean Airlines plane 007 on September the 1st, 1983. I have mentioned Abraham Schifrin, the Jewish immigrant from Russia, who conducted an investigation into the Korean Airlines incident. He concluded that there was overwhelming evidence that the plane was not, and I repeat, not shot down. 
He concluded that the plane had experienced a decompression, probably from a bomb exploding in the plane, ripping a hole in the fuselage. He found that two separate radar sources had reported that the plane landed safely on Sakhalin Island in Russia. Mr. Schifrin had reported that many Soviet immigrants had told him where the passengers had been placed into concentration camps. And that as recently as 1995, 12 years after the incident, he had eyewitness reports that most of the passengers were still alive, including Congressman McDonald. I've discussed the head of the principal Directorate of Strategic Deception in Russia, General Nikolai Orgorkov. He went to the scene and reported that the airplane was shot down by a missile fired from a Russian fighter airplane and that it crashed into the ocean with no survivors amongst the crew or passengers. I've also discussed George Schultz, the head of America's principal directorate of strategic deception, who also went to the scene to investigate. The press has identified him as America's Secretary of State, but he was in truth the head of America's principal department of strategic deception. He said the airplane was shot down by a missile fired from a Russian fighter plane and that it crashed into the ocean with no survivors among the crew or passengers. I have mentioned young Willie Solis, who burned the Russian flag for what they did to the Korean Airlines airplane. And I say this, Willie, you should have burned the American flag as well for what they did to the Korean Airlines airplane. So once again, Russia's vaunted missile program did not do the job. They did not shoot the plane down as the Russians claimed. And that is the classic example of how this all comes together. The United States and Russia are both controlled by a massive conspiracy, just as I have been teaching for over 40 years. And they lie to us, just as Sun Tzu said in his book written many years ago, practice deceit. And to end this discussion, I would like to bring into the discussion someone who certainly would have known if I was right or wrong, and that was President Lyndon Johnson, who was president from 1963 to 1969. Jeffrey T. Rickelson, in his book entitled America's Secret Eyes in Space, quoted President Johnson as saying, I wouldn't want to be quoted on this. We've spent $40 billion on the space program, and if nothing else had come out of it, except the knowledge that we gained from space photography, it would be worth 10 times what it cost. Because tonight we know how many missiles the enemy has, and now he's got to be speaking about Russia as being our enemy because it was the subject of all of those satellite pictures. He continued, It turned out that our guesses were way off. We were doing things we didn't need to do. We were building things we didn't need to build. 
We were harboring fears we didn't need to harbor. But I want to commend President Johnson. Once he learned the truth about all of the fraud, he made a nationally televised speech to the American people to tell us that we had wasted billions of dollars of money spent on building a nuclear deterrent to counter an enemy that didn't have a nuclear force. And that the waste would end starting with that moment. And in fact, I have a clip, a clip of him taken from this televised speech to the American people, and here it is. Uh, there's no picture here because Lyndon Johnson did not go on national television to tell us the truth once he knew it. He knew that no one in Congress or the defense industry wanted to end the Cold War. He knew that no one in the Pentagon wanted to end the government waste of billions of dollars on a protection that we didn't need. He knew that no one in the missile or space industry wanted to end the government waste of billions of dollars on a protection that we didn't need. In other words, Lyndon did not want to tell the truth. There were too many dollars in profit to be made, all at the expense of the American taxpayers. Thirty years of my research into this subject has proven to me that President Lyndon Johnson was correct. So I remain convinced that only the United States has nukes. Thank you so very, very much. And may God bless America.